Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the monthly podcast from the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult in the UK. Here you'll discover emerging technology in offshore renewables and learn the latest plans for harnessing the world's natural resources and cleaning up the Energy Act. My name is Miriam Noonan. I'm the Senior Financial Analyst at the Catapult, the UK's leading innovation and research centre for offshore renewables. Today, we're discovering the transformation of the offshore energy sector. From decades of oil and gas production to the adoption of offshore renewable energy. This energy transition has never been more important as the UK works towards its ambitious net zero targets for 2050. To do so is not to say that offshore renewable energy will replace oil and gas production immediately. It's a growing partnership between the two industries with particular importance placed on the role of floating offshore wind in decarbonising the oil and gas industry. Today, we are joined by industry experts from the Castvault, as well as offshore energy company Balmoral. Without further ado, let's meet today's guests. Ralph, do you want to go first? My name is Ralph Thor. I'm a programme manager at the uh, ORE Catapult. My role here is programme management. I'm responsible for developing and delivering two programmes. One's called the Fit for Offshore Renewables programme, which is a supply chain uh, development programme within which we're working actively with a number of oil and gas organisations who, who, are, who are in the process of effectively moving to uh, the offshore renewables market and growing within that. I also look after the floating offshore wind centre of excellence that the RE Catapult is currently in the process of establishing. And again, floating offshore wind, there's a very clear synergy between the existing UK oil and gas supply chain uh, its skills and experience and the technology that is going to be required to, to be deployed to support floating offshore wind projects here in the UK. Hugh, do you want to go next? Yeah, so Hugh Riddle, um, I'm based out of Aberdeen, um, based out of Subsea UK's office in West Hill, just on the outskirts of Aberdeen. My role is Regional Partnership Manager and um, I'm the most northerly employee for ORE Catapult. My background has actually been in oil and gas. I haven't actually worked for any of the operators, but I've certainly worked in the supply chain. So I've got over 25 years experience working for a number of supply chain companies, most of them actually in the subsea arena. So um, with my role, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of the SMEs in the, in the northeast of Scotland and seeing how we can help these companies diversify into offshore renewables. Work very, very closely with Vattenfall. Um, they have their European Offshore Wind Deployment Centre wind farm in Aberdeen Bay. And we have a collaboration agreement with Vattenfall for the demonstration of technologies. So we've been talking to an awful lot of SMEs about the opportunity to demonstrate their technologies. And that may well be a case of them uh, diversifying from oil and gas into renewables as well. So great opportunities for them there. Similar to Ralph, uh, I never believed this, but now I find myself uh, meeting with some of the oil and gas operators in the northeast of Scotland and seeing what their plans are for the future and how offshore renewables can help them and how they want to also move into offshore renewables as a, an additional revenue stream. And we have an external guest as well, Ian Mill from uh, Balmoral. So Maybe if you can introduce the company a little bit as well as your own experience. Well, I'm Ian Milne. I look after the renewables market as a sales manager for Balmoral. Um, Balmoral has been established out of Aberdeen now for over 40 years. It's a privately owned company. Our specialist 
technologies are, have been involved in subsea protection and buoyancy systems for years around the globe. What we're doing now is adapting that technology and bringing it to the renewables market. Um, my background has been in similar. You know, coming from Aberdeen, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for us to be involved in oil and gas. My background has been with similar service companies with uh, offshore construction and the installation of uh, offshore platforms and substations, etc. So, I mean, I guess sitting in Scotland, there's a huge growth in um, offshore renewables as well as the established oil and gas industry. So where do you think the main synergies are between the two industries for those who might be a bit less familiar? I see the synergy between the development of offshore renewable energy in in Scotland at at the scale that ScotWind is allowing to be very well aligned with, with the process that the oil and gas sector is going to go through to slowly transition some of its products and services and supply chain to support that. Scotwind is unique in the UK and probably internationally in terms of the the depth of some of the leasing zones. Um, so it's it's really, in, in my view, the first large-scale national offshore renewable energy leasing program that at least half of all project activity, if not more, will be floating. Um, so, so it's really leading the world in creating opportunity for commercial scale floating offshore wind activity. And one of the key opportunities actually to, to allow that to happen is the oil and gases sector uh, and, and their demand and desire to reduce their emissions from their offshore activities. They're really looking for low carbon supplies of energy, primarily electricity, for their activities in the North Sea. And the sort of scale of uh, supply that they need is actually fairly well aligned with these medium scale projects that we're looking to deliver. So there's this natural alignment between the desire and requirement for floating offshore wind as an industry to grow through these medium scale projects and the requirement for the oil and gas sector to, to secure access to low carbon electricity to power its operations offshore. There's just this really great synergy there but for the two industries to work together, not only to deliver these projects, but also to build relationships, give supply chains in, in both industries an opportunity to, to move across. So um, that, that to me is the, the kind of rationale and why there is such a good synergy in Scotland, particularly between mm. the, the two. I would add to that uh, from the operator's point of view in the oil and gas industry, it's not just about uh, decarbonizing their offshore activities, which uh, they, they are trying to meet their environmental social governance measures. It's, it's also about extending the lifetime of their operations, extending the lifetime of some of the fields in oil and gas. Playing devil's advocate here, because I'm sure anyone listening will kind of be wondering, is this something we should be encouraging? Should we be pushing for oil and gas operators to be extending their production life and accessing new reservoirs or should we be pulling ourselves off that use? I think there has to be a recognition that there, there is always going to be a requirement for hydrocarbons. Even with the offshore wind turbines, you need certain lubricants produced from hydrocarbons to make the, the turbines work um, effectively. And uh, we're going to need them for the manufacture of the turbines as well and all the component parts. This would just extend the oil and gas industry and hydrocarbons would be utilised in the proper manner and not just burnt to extract hydrocarbons. You know, because at the moment, a number of companies are spending, again, millions of pounds every single year buying in diesel just to burn to run the generators, to run the turbines. So I think if we can take that out of the equation, 
We've got the win-win situation. We're reducing the carbon emissions from offshore activities, and we're also extending the life of the oil and gas industry to utilize those hydrocarbons for a better purpose. Particularly, the operating companies have already committed a significant resource to moving the offshore wind. But the oil and gas industry is going to be there forever. You're right, Hugh, and it's about, I think we need to try and not have them as separate beings, if you like. For me, it's offshore energy. You know, yeah, exactly. and I, I think yeah. we need to start have a bit more of the collaborative approach to it. You know, I'm without singling anyone developer out. I think what they're doing um, about investments we made to construct a floating offshore wind farm to power the traditional offshore production facility is a massive step. The oil and gas market will continue to survive. The likes of Balmoral, again, that's kind of we're pushing up. We're not being wanting to be recognised as a Euro service company for the offshore oil and gas or Euro service company for offshore renewable energy because for me, they all go in hand in hand. It's, it's a solution provider for the energy sector. And so Ian, yeah. from Balmoral's way of working, is it pretty fluid between teams that might be working on renewable assets and teams that be working on oil and gas? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the 40 years of subsea construction, the model has and, and track record behind them and a lot of patented technology that's still in, in, in service today. And whether it's going to be an FPSO or a floating turbine or a, a, a monopile on a jacket, you know, the, the kind of subsea construction part of it are very, very similar. What we're doing is adapting the products to the environments that are going to be in. You know, if you speak about, we're speaking about floating wind a bit already, but deep water and floating wind is seen as 300 metres. And deep water to Balmoral is 7,000 metres. So, fine, yeah, we've got products that'll do it. But what we're looking to do now is actually adapt those because they might actually be over-engineered for what's required. Um, but what we do is we utilise the patented technologies on the installation methodology because that's where Bomoral come into their own in terms of getting installations in a more efficient way. Yeah, and I think especially when you're moving from, you know, one or maybe three platforms for an oil and gas site mm -hmm. versus 50, 100, 200 turbines, mm -hmm. uh, suddenly those efficiencies and installation become even more valuable. There is a real opportunity for these companies to diversify because all the skills and technologies are very, very similar especially those in Balmoral or accounting in this who work in subsea arena. Um, at the end of the day, it's a bit of steel and salty water and you have to deal with that. So a lot of the technology are easily transferable across. So there's a huge amount that we can learn from oil and gas and uh, bring into the offshore renewables. They have 40 years of experience, 50 years of experience. So there's, they've, made, they've made the mistakes and they've learned from these mistakes but we're in the fortunate position that we can capitalise on uh, the new technologies that are available. Yeah, and I think they complement each other from kind of the economic perspective as yep. well. The way that um, the contracts for differences are done, which is the auction method for getting offshore wind on the grid, it offers a fixed price for 15 years. And compared yep. to the up and down of oil and gas, that kind of steady income, it, can probably be a really good asset to have across a portfolio project. It's a fantastic area for diversification for these oil and gas supply chain companies. Um, primarily because you've got the, the sector deal, which is aiming for 30 gigawatts in, in the UK by 2030. And I know that the, the Conservative Manifesto was saying 40 gigawatts. We've seen some targets that are even more ambitious for that moving forward to 2040 and 2050. So there is this 
this sector is going to be around for a long, long time and there's going to be huge opportunities. Mm. We've got about 9.5 gigawatts installed off the UK just now. So in the next 10 years or so, we're expecting to another 20, 30 gigawatts. Opportunities are just fantastic there. So the companies know that there's not going to be boom and bust because of the CFDs. There's a guaranteed price that uh, the operators are achieving through that. So there are long-term projects that can be won for a lot of the companies in the supply chain. On the CFD point there, uh, Hugh, to, here's the supply chain company, you know, <laughs> waving a flag here. And you're right, it's good, you know, it's a fixed price for the time of the project, you know, excellent. But in the fact, I mean, we all saw in the last CFD rounds, it was the lowest pounds per megawatt hour, you yeah. know, and it was lower than most and kind of anticipated. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing for the likes of the supply chain. The lower the price, the less opportunity there is to make a margin, which could result actually in losing some of that supply chain. Yeah. And I, well, I also think with the local content aspirations growing, but the price is reducing, it might be challenging for that to kind of level out. Um, but that kind of brings me back to my point earlier about the two industries working closer together. Technologies and efficiencies exist, so it's important that we listen to each other. And I think that um, you know, my, my analogy of, of the widget and what else can the widget do and how can we get that installed quicker, cleaner, more efficient it goes back to the price versus value thing so there's there's, there's a bit of a bit of challenge there i think across across all boards yeah and i think that's where floating wind maybe gives us an opportunity to learn from this steep cost reduction in fixed bottom offshore wind and maybe look at what new areas um of opportunities there are so moorings and anchors are I think an obvious example of something that's been involved in oil and gas and is really transferable and something new to offshore renewables. And we need that experience. We need the understanding of how these components act um, in the water. And I think the Floating Wind Centre of Excellence, where we are kind of pulling a lot of this knowledge together, it has been really valuable and will hopefully continue to be really valuable. I guess my next question would maybe be what cross-sex partnerships do exist between oil and renewables and how, how do we think Scotland can benefit from this shift? Ralph, do you maybe want to talk first kind of from the Flakeman Centre of Excellence perspective? It's interesting, I guess, in some respects, there's a lot of existing organisations which in, in the oil and gas industry are seen as oil and gas companies and in the renewables industry are seen as renewables companies, but are one and the same company. So, you know, the biggest player in floating offshore wind, Equinor, a uh, very big name in the wind industry, you know, but you kind of forget that there's, there's this whole oil and gas part of them and it's, it's a huge part of what they do. We already have uh, a number of organizations in the wind industry who we look at as wind farm developers, but are actually kind of multi-energy organizations. Uh, you know, Equinor are just a, one of a, a wide range of examples of, of major utilities which exist uh, that, that do operate across the energy sector. So within the industry already, there's a lot of big organizations that are already working across the sectors. On a personal level, uh, I guess my understanding through, through dialogue with the uh, with colleagues in those organizations that that they are really starting to integrate their businesses in a way that that, that probably hasn't happened before so large organizations like that working in different industries uh, you know depending on how they set themselves up that despite they've got having the same name they could be quite separate entities but my, my my understanding from colleagues is that over the last couple of years a lot of those organizations have transformed themselves internally 
so that they're really much better connected and they can they can do a lot of that knowledge transfer stuff already. So it, it might not feel like there's a whole lot of collaboration between the industries, but actually some of the you know long-standing players are, are, are by default kind of already working across the sectors. Um, when we're talking about cross-sector partnerships, I think it's important to mention that um, we're working very, very closely with the OGTC, the Oil and Gas Technology Centre. And um, that's been happening over the last six months or so. And again, I'll say it, um, when I first came into this role, I never imagined that we, we would be working so closely with uh, an oil and gas uh, uh, organisation such as that. And it's come to such a stage that we now have a shared employee, Jason Patterson, who is 50% funded by OGTC and 50% funded by ORE Catapult. That's a very significant move. And I know Jason's doing a lot of really good work with uh, integrated energy vision. So this integrated energy vision is uh, involving a lot of other industry bodies from offshore renewables and from oil and gas. And we're trying to see what the North Sea will look like in 2030, what will the North Sea will look like in 2040, and moving out as far as 2050. So Jason actually works out of the one of the solution centres set up by the OGTC, which is the Net Zero Solution Centre. So that's all looking at the decarbonisation of offshore activities and electrification of oil and gas platforms. So a lot of good work going on there. And there's a lot of collaboration, not just with the OGTC, but through this integrated energy vision. We're collaborating with uh, Opportunity Northeast, for example, who are going to be setting up an energy transition zone in Aberdeen uh, over the next few years. So that's a lot of interesting things going on there and a lot of discussions going on with Surrey and Wood in respect to that. I think your point on uh, the technicians and, you know, giving the example of the Bosier training, I think that's one area where there are crucial differences, for example, in how you access a turbine, um, either kind of with a boat landing and an access ladder, or if you are accessing by a helicopter, there's a winch system, which is very different to obviously a spacious helipad on an oil and gas platform. So I think absolutely people need specific training for the asset that they're working on but I think there's so much overlap um, that it could completely be delivered in one session um, where technicians might be working on both types of assets. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, ultimately to the, to, to the technician, let me speak in quite generalistic here, but to the technician who's either going on to a vessel or a platform or a turbine, I don't think he really cares. He, mm. You know, as long as he's got a certificate that he can go, because a lot of these guys are, you know, if it's, you speak about the, the, the northeast here in Aberdeen, the coastal regions, you know, the, these guys are fishermen and farming to, to, as, as their stock, you know, and they, they, they've trained to go into these offshore environments to, to chase the dollar if you like. So as long as the work's there, you know, that's kind of my point there is, and you've, you've hit the nail on the head as well, that, you know, but if we can get, you know, whether it's a different module or different trainer or however it is, but to maybe have like one, like actually tick the box, you know, you guys are seeking to go offshore, particularly when the likes of your Equinors and Totals of these world are now doing these offshore wind farms as well, yeah. to their standards and their and their regulations. So they've got their own safety. And more so when it's into more, you know, particularly in floating, there's more dynamic situations, which is maybe more, you know, seeing the guys have more experience in accessing these in, in, in traditional oil and gas projects. Yeah, and I think helicopters are still really early days in offshore wind. Um, yeah. They're not commonplace. And um, yeah, I, I think people are still kind of 
feeling their way for what's the best operational strategy for different sites and I think as things progress we're going to see a lot more autonomous systems hopefully people being able to work more remotely so I mean maybe that's a, a natural segue into maybe discussing a little bit about what oil and gas could learn from offshore wind because I think when you are working on 50 assets in the water the benefits of autonomous systems and being able to remotely manage uh, wind farms across a large area it, it, it's a huge benefit to be able to remotely operate so especially when wind farms are getting farther from shore as well with uh, scotland number of license blocks are more than 100 miles offshore so yeah autonomous systems are going to become more and more important and the jobs that these autonomous systems are going to be doing, especially the subsea autonomous systems, it, it's inspection, it's visual inspection, it's hydrographic work, it's, it's all unbelievably similar. And as we move into floating wind, we're going to have inspections of mooring chains, etc. So it's all completely compatible. So there's a number of companies, especially in the Aberdeen area, who are developing new autonomous systems for this purpose. And they are not distinguishing between whether these systems are going to be ready for oil and gas or for offshore renewables. They see them as being ready for subsea operations offshore of the coast of Scotland and elsewhere. Hugh, Ian, Ralph, thank you for taking part in today's episode. It's now time to de-energise until next time. Hugh and Ralph, you're part of the Catapult team, so listeners can find out about your project at oreg.catapult.org.uk and on Twitter at O-R-E Catapult. For more information on Ian's work at Balmoral, visit balmoraloffshore.com or on Twitter at News. We'll be back this time next month, so make sure you subscribe.